morning. If you will turn your in your Bibles to John chapter 1. I should mention that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. By all means, take advantage of those. And if there's not one near you, maybe someone down the row can pass you one. But turn to John chapter 1, please. We're working through the prologue of this challenging gospel written by the Apostle John. You'll remember that John's purpose for this gospel is disclosed in John chapter 20. Just hold your finger there and turn over to John chapter 20. Hopefully you've, well, if it's your Bible, you've underlined this verse. If it's a pew Bible, maybe you'll want to refrain. But John chapter 20 and verse 31 But these things have been written so that, it's a purpose statement, number one, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and two, that believing you may have life in his name. We identified believe as one of the key words in this particular gospel. It's pisteo in the Greek, and it's used 98 times in just 21 verses. Amazing. So this is why John wrote the gospel, that we would believe and have life in his name. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the gospel's beginning, presented in the first five verses of John chapter 1. Here we found the gospel's beginnings rooted in the word. In the beginning was the word. It was a pre-existent, preeminent word, a divine word, an incredibly credible word, a redemptive word, and an unconquerable word. Last week, we focused on verses 6 through 8, and we recognized God's involvement in the gospel's unveiling, or the gospel's disclosure. It was his initiative, his motivation, and his clarification that pulled back the curtains and exposed this gospel. Both of these messages reinforced our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. A gospel that is established on a pre-existing, preeminent, divine, incredibly credible, redemptive, and unconquerable word. A gospel unveiled or revealed as a result of God's initiative, motivation, and significant clarification. It reinforced our understanding, our appreciation, and our confidence in this gospel. And with that, we were equipped to be the effective witnesses or ambassadors or representatives that God intends us to be. That is, after all, why we're here. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. So this morning, we want to continue our study through chapter 1 by focusing on verses 9 through 13. To follow our previous pattern, this would be the gospel's enlightenment or the gospel's illumination. The Apostle John, in these verses, wants to help us to see that it's not just what we know, but it takes more than that. It's what we do 
with what we know that determines our relationship with God. Those who are able, I would invite you to stand with me this morning as we read these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Beginning at verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Father, as the psalmist prayed, the teaching of your word gives light so even the simple can understand. We pant with expectation, longing for your commands. Come and show us your mercy as you do for all who love your name. Guide our steps by your word, so we will not be overcome by evil. Ransom us from the oppression of evil people. Then we can obey your commands. Look upon us with love. Teach us your decrees. By your power and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Mark Bailey currently serves as the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, where he's been for a number of years. In his book, which I read a number of months ago, titled To Follow Him, The Seven Marks of a Disciple, he begins chapter 3 with a little bit of a, a story. And I realize it's a little long, 
but I think you'll find it both memorable and interesting. So listen as I read. On the day after my son Joshua turned 16, he obtained his driver's license. That night, I thought it might be a timely moment for a father-son chat. We went to our favorite coffee shop. I ordered a cup of coffee and he ordered a chocolate shake. And then I pulled out the napkin. Josh knew what was coming next. I hadn't pulled out the napkin because I expected to spill my coffee. The napkin is an important part of the Bailey family lore and has been an ingredient of our times together since before Josh could even see over the table. We call it napkin theology. Since the boys were old enough to go out alone with dad, we've had some of the best father-son times over an early morning breakfast or a late night snack. And some of the greatest insights God has graciously given me were in those spontaneous times when the napkin became a substitute for whiteboards and overhead projectors. In 20 plus years of teaching and parenting, some of my favorite memories are of those teachable moments at the Iron Skillet or at the Cheddar's Coffee Shop. That night was one of those magical moments, which resulted in some of the best insights on making decisions according to God's will I have ever discovered. What makes it even more special is that they were discovered in a joint session with my oldest son. I pulled out the napkin and held out the pen, ready for some illustrative doodling. But first, I opened things up with a simple statement. Josh, I said, I want you to think about something for a minute. Sure, Dad. He was was agreeable as long as I was buying. Let me share a statement with you a friend of mine once shared with me. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences, but you can't choose both. He looked up from his milkshake and said, say what? I repeated the statement and we began to talk about it. Take driving, for example, I began. Josh sat straight up in the booth cushion. It's probably safe to say that you never want to cause a serious car crash or a fatality. Is that right? Oh, absolutely, Dad. That would be horrible. Okay, then. If you never want to be the cause of a terrible accident, if that is what you choose as your consequence, then what actions have you given up? He thought about it. Well, Dad, I guess that means I can't drive really fast or mess around. That's right. But if you choose to speed, Josh, then what have you given up? He wasn't sure. The consequences. You've given up determining the consequences. If you, if you never know if there is a policeman around the bend who will arrest you or write you a big ticket, or worse, you never know if there's a small child up ahead who's about to cross the road on his bike. You never know how another driver might respond when he's trying to dodge out of your way. 
You don't know any of those things. You can't determine any of those things. So when you speed, you give up the right to choose your consequences. It's not your choice anymore. It's out of your control, out of your hands. Do you understand? We talked about that for a while. And then he took a breath and pushed, and then I took a breath and pushed on. Okay, I said. Now let's talk about sex. Let me assure you this morning that we're not going to talk about sex or, or driving, but we are going to talk about God's enlightenment. And because it's not what you know, but what you do with what you know, that will determine your relationship with God. Notice verse 9 of John chapter 1. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. So the gospel's enlightenment is universal. John informs us that the light coming into the world enlightens every man, woman, and child. The word translated true is a favorite of the Apostle John's. He uses it several times. Here in John chapter 1, it's the true light. In John chapter 4, verse 23, it's true worshipers. In chapter 6, verse 23, it's the true bread from heaven. In chapter 15, verse 1, it's the true vine. And then it's the true God. In John chapter 7, verse 28, in chapter 17, Verse 3. By true, he means real or genuine or authentic. And think about it. In a culture that has a kind of a, a buffet of deities, it's reasonable for John to qualify this as being true. It's the true light, the real meal deal. Now, some of us may find it ironic that McDonald's food would be associated with anything real, but you get my point. And it's coming into the world. That translates a phrase that could be either attached to the light or to every man. And I think what you'll see in many translations, you'll have a footnote giving you the alternative in the column. So which is it? Is it the light that is coming into the world? Or is it every man that is coming into the world? Or does it even matter since both are coming into the world? Well, humanity's existence and the relationship to the light was already defined or mentioned in verses 3 and 4. Notice that. All things in verse 3 came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has came into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In addition, we discover that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John often ref- attaches this coming into the world with the word. And you'll notice in this prelogue that John is using metaphoric language 
And he uses the word, the life, and the light. And so it seems the preferable option here is to say it's the light that's coming into the world as an outsider. I grew up in the town of Petrolia, just down the road a ways, about an hour from here. Petrolia, the first place in North America where oil was extracted from the ground. That's our claim to fame. I think I was about 15 years old when we had our, celebrated our 100th birthday for the town of Petrolia. And as I recall it, it was a, a really big deal. And part of the celebration is that they sold these buttons. They were about three inches in diameter that you pinned on your shirt and you could buy either a green one or a red one. I had a green one. And green ones were reserved for those who were born and raised in the town of Petrolia. We were called hard oilers. Everyone else had to buy a red one. And they were called Johnny-come-latelys. The light is a Johnny-come-lately to creation. It came from the outside and was brought into the creation. He was an outsider. In fact, John here maybe even be making a, a veiled reference to the incarnation that he's going to disclose even further in John chapter, in John chapter 1 verse 14. Notice verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten father full of grace and truth. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, the light is an outsider coming in to the world. I should also mention that the word translated world is another favorite of the Apostle John. He uses it 78 times in these 21 chapters. And for comparison's sake, Matthew uses it eight times. Mark and Luke both use it only three times. And so in John's gospel, it can mean the physical world in which we live, or it can mean a large number of people, but by far. The majority of times when Paul, when John is using this word, he's referring to sinful humanity. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar at Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, has written an explanation that may even make it more clear. He said, the world, or frequently this world, is not the universe, but the created order, especially human beings in human affairs in rebellion to its maker. Therefore, when John tells us that God loves the world, in John chapter 3, verse 16, far from being an endorsement of the world, it is a testimony to the character of God. In fact, the world in John's usage comprises no believers at all. Those who come to faith are no longer of this world. They've been chosen out of the world. Chapter 15, verse 19. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, 
chapter 4, verse 42. That says a great deal about Jesus, but nothing positive about the world. In fact, he writes, it tells us the world is in desperate need of a savior. The light came as an outsider into the world, into a less than perfect world, full of less than perfect people, surrounded by less than perfect circumstances. And it enlightens every man or every person. To enlighten, according to the dictionary definition, is to give someone greater knowledge and understanding about a subject or a situation. And here, in this context, it's spiritual reality. Or, more specifically, about the reality of God himself. Prior to the light's arrival, humanity is wandering around in the dark with respect to their understanding, their knowledge of God. They needed enlightenment to be made aware. And God ensures that that enlightenment is for everyone. There's two theological terms used to capture God's enlightenment of humanity. There is natural revelation or general revelation, and then special revelation. Natural revelation happens when we can come to know about God through his creation, through history, seeing him intervene in history, and from our own consciences, that inner voice from within us, that, that place God made within each and every individual. Turn with me to Psalm 19. This will be one that you will probably want to mark in your Bible when it comes to God disclosing himself to humanity. The first six verses lay out general revelation. And verses 7 to 14 speak to special revelation. Let me just read the first three verses of Psalm 19 for you. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And then verse six, the rising of the front, it's the rising, it's rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat, talking about the sun. Discloses the reality of a creator God. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 informs us that God has also set eternity in their heart. And Romans chapter 1 verse 20 tells us, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Anyone and everyone has the opportunity 
to catch glimpses of our creator God in the creation around us and that still small voice that speaks from within. Special revelation, on the other hand, is God's disclosure of his person, his purpose, and his plans so that salvation becomes available. Specifically, the word made flesh, in other words, Jesus Christ, and the written word, the scriptures, are the special revelation of God. Those are God's means of disclosing the way of salvation. No additional revelation is required. That's important to understand. No additional revelation is required. We have everything we need to live a godly life according to 1 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. Everything we need. And that's what we're referring to when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture. No more further revelation is necessary. It's all here. Awareness, understanding, and obedience, that may be an issue. But revelation is not. God has made available all the information that we need to live a holy life, a life that is pleasing to him. You and I, along with everyone else, have been enlightened. Our enlightenment is a gift from God. We have done nothing to deserve it. It's not something that you and I can somehow come up with on our own, figure it out. It is simply a gracious expression of God's love. Can you hear your hear my mother prompting us? George, what do you say? Thank you, God, for opening our eyes to spiritual realities, for turning on the light so that we are aware of your presence. That's how you respond to a gift that's been given. Our enlightenment also suggests that you and I have a need. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the believers at Colossae, reminded them that he, that is the Father, has rescued them from the dominion of darkness. And then First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 informs us that God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Folks, apart from God's enlightenment, you and I are in the dark. And that enlightenment calls for a response. Once the lights have been turned on, we can choose our actions or our consequences, but we cannot choose both. But it does require a choice. And to not choose is a choice. This universal enlightenment also leaves us without an excuse. You can't say... Well, nobody told me. That's been taken off the table, right? Because general revelation doesn't give us the solution, but it gives us enough to make us culpable. We're guilty. We will face the consequences. Enlightenment is universal. Notice verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. 
and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The gospel's enlightenment is not enough. Although enlightened, the world and his own did not know him or receive him. The world didn't know him, although he entered the world and was indeed its creator. How absurd is that? Entering the world speaks of proximity, nearness. There's, there's an implied closeness. The light's not keeping us at arm's length. The light became close and, and personal. The fact that he was the one through whom the world was made suggests maybe dependency and and an intimate knowledge of this creation that he created. The world would not even exist apart from the light's initiative. And yet the world did not know him. How in the world is that possible? But even those who enjoyed a special relationship with him didn't receive him. It just seems like John is ratcheting up here. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Let's go back to the beginning. Exodus chapter 19, and beginning at verse 3. So verse 1 says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So they've left the land of Egypt. Verse 3, Moses went up to God, Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So here we have God choosing this particular people group to be a people for himself. And the Apostle Paul lists the advantages of being part of that people group in Romans chapter 9. Just listen as I read. They are the people of Israel. And here I've, I've identified seven things that are advantages. Chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them. He gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him. Sixth received his wonderful promises, and seventh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
those great patriarchs of the Old Testament are their ancestors. And yet, his own did not receive him. This is like showing up to a family reunion and being ushered to the door, being told to leave. How sad is that? Although enlightened, the world and his very own people did not know him or receive him. You see, God's enlightenment can be rebuffed. Remember the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? Turn there, please. We have this rich young ruler coming to Jesus and asking how he may obtain eternal life. And someone came to him and said in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19, Teacher, what good things shall I do? shall I do to obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then they go back and forth. And this guy says uh, in verse 20, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22. Remember, you can choose your actions or your consequences, but you can't choose the both. Verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he is one who owned much property. How about the two thieves? hanging beside Jesus. One curses him, the other repents. My goodness, what about Judas, one of the original 12 who walked intimately with Jesus and yet betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver? God's enlightenment can be missed or dismissed. You and I, we can be enlightened but remain in the dark by not knowing or receiving him. It's easy to become preoccupied with the things of this world. Listen as I read from 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives Forever. The world can seduce us, keep us busy, running, running, chasing after the wind. In the end, we'll wake up and find ourselves coming to the same conclusion as the preacher 
the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I realize that making any kind of reference to country music is risky. It's like talking politics, I think. But bear with me as I mention a a song that climbed the country music charts a number of years ago. Um, The chorus went something like this. I'm in a hurry to get things done, rushing, rushing till life's no fun, when all I really have to do is live and die. I'm in a hurry, and I don't know why. Preoccupations with the things of this world can leave us dark in spite of our enlightenment. Positions of privilege, like these Israelites, can also insulate us from enlightenment. Just like the nation of Israel, these present privileges that you and I enjoy can come up as kind of a preferred option. Prosperity. Relationships. Religious liberties. The fact that we get to do what we're doing this morning. Personal accomplishment are all just examples of the things that can kind of encourage us to miss God's enlightenment. Then the Apostle John mentions something that I need to point out in chapter 3, verse 19, that we need to be aware of. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Preoccupations, positions of privilege, our propensity for evil conspire to nullify the impact of God's enlightenment in our lives. And that's why being enlightened is not enough. You see, it's not what you know, but what you do with what you know that will determine your relationship with God. Notice verse 12. That was the dark side, the the discouraging news. Now let's move to the good news. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's in contrast to those in verse 10 who did not know him and those in verse 11 who did not receive him. These ones received him in verse 12. And receiving him or is synonymous with believing in his name. They're the same thing. And it means believing in everything that he stood for. It means believing that he was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. It's believing all of that. John Piper adds, receiving him means taking him into your life for what he is. It does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with one who makes no demands on your life. As though he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud. 
It's not that kind of coexistence, partnership. The appropriate response to the light's enlightenment is to receive and believe in his name in all that he is. The word translated right can mean power or authority. The idea is that the authorization has already been given. So by receiving and believing in his name, we have been authorized to become the children of God. And so in if you watch Fox News or are aware of what's happening in the United States these days, what I'd like to say is the executive order has already been signed by God, not by Donald J. Trump. We can become the children of God. And those who are given the right to become children of God are born of God. John continues by telling us what born of God is not. Notice it's not established by bloodlines. Doesn't matter if you were the, you can trace your ancestry back to Abraham. Does not matter. This is not about bloodlines. It's not about, um, self-improvement or, or going home and pulling on your big pants and buckling up your bootstraps. Nothing like that. It's not something that you can will yourself into. And it's not related in any way to the act of procreation. This is a God thing from beginning to end. God enables us to become his children. And becoming a child of God requires that we be born again. In John chapter 3, Jesus is approached by one of the religious elite of his day a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And again, I'm jumping ahead to John chapter 3. But turn there, just flip the page. Notice verse 3. Jesus said, Unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then notice the exchange that takes place beginning at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I think that's a rhetorical question. No. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, what's born of water and the Spirit? Well, keep reading. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the water part. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is explaining that this is a supernatural act of God. It's a spiritual rebirth. To be a child of God, we must be born again. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. And folks, that's kind of exciting, that that's a possibility. Apostle Paul adds, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
verse 17. Being born again involves a supernatural rebirth that begins with a that begins a transformation that starts on the inside and begins to work its way out in our behaviors, in our actions and reactions. Later, the Apostle John wrote, See how very much the Father loves you, for he calls us his children. And that's what we are. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. You and I become children of God by responding appropriately to God's enlightenment, by receiving him and believing in his name. Remember, we can choose our actions or our consequences, but we cannot choose both. The true light coming into the world has enlightened all of us. We can choose to dismiss it, ignore it, avoid it, curse it, and then we will face the consequences of those actions. God's desire is that we would choose the alternative to become his children. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then those verses that Pastor Wayne read to us earlier in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has his Son has life, and whoever does not have his, the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, The true life, the true light has come into the world. We have been enlightened. But that enlightenment is not enough. You see, it's not what you know, but it's what you do with what you know that determines your relationship with God. Believe in the name of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then do all that you can to persuade others to do the same by your words and by your deeds. Let's pray. Father, it's so clear in some ways so simple and yet in other ways so difficult. Help us, we pray. First, to respond appropriately to the enlightenment that you've given each one of us and then to encourage and persuade and and do all that we can to help others to do likewise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.